1: Dan Loney. Peter Connie Brown joins us here in the studio. Uh, And great to have him. He has a new book out called The Power and and Independence of the Federal Reserve. And certainly the Fed has been uh, right there in the front of a lot of of what you see in the news these days, anything kind of uh, revolving around the U.S. economy, in some respects the global economy as well. Uh, uh, Peter, a great Wharton professor and obviously a historian where uh, the Federal Reserve uh, comes about. And we are great to have him in the studio again.
0: Thanks. Uh, always a pleasure to be here, Dan.
1: Talk a little bit about how the concept. I mean, you you, you have such a wealth of uh, of knowledge of history about the Federal Reserve. Anyway, but but the idea to bring this book forward.
0: Yeah. So you know, the, there are a lot of different. Anytime you talk about the Federal Reserve, especially in the public, especially after the crisis, frankly, uh, there's this this sense of mystery. This sense of conspiracy. I mean, if you look in the Library of Congress catalog of books on the Federal Reserve, there are shelves that have just groan under the weight of the conspiracy theories <laughs> behind them. And some of these are, are, are pretty harmless. You know, the Council on Foreign Relations and the Federal Reserve. Run the uh, the global political system through Bohemian Grove or something like that. Yeah. Those are kind of kind of silly. Some of them are actually quite uh, quite quite evil. A lot of it won't surprise <laughs> you. A lot of anti Semitism shows up in these books. Sure. And so part of what was motivating me over the last six years that I've been working on this book was kind of getting at what makes the Fed such this u- such a uniquely mysterious institution that draws these conspiracists out. So some, on one part, it might be, oh, because what the Fed does is so technical, mm-hmm. right? Uh, most of us, the, the uh, many of us stopped taking math in, in high school, and those of us who continued math through college uh, still didn't get the education needed in order to do monetary policy mm-hmm. in the heavily mathematical way that it's done. But that actually doesn't make much sense as an explanation either because if you've ever read an application to the Food and Drug Administration for a new medication, you'll see it is not written in English, right? <laughs> this is only for experts. and The same is true for the EPA or the, the uh, FCC or any other in, uh, agency of government. Mm-hmm. You know, these are, this is technical work. So that doesn't distinguish the Fed. That's the same with all of them. So I think what does distinguish the Fed, and here's part of the, the title of the book, is this this extraordinary concept of independence. Uh So we have the story about national government coming to us from the Constitutional Convention and the pen of James Madison, that government is this this tripartite structure. We've got legislative, executive, and judicial. Well, where does banking come in? Uh Well, formally, legally, the Federal Reserve is a creature of Congress. It's created by statute. But its functions are quite different from functions of making law or enforcing law or or judging between competing views of law. It is a financial, a banking function. And the Fed is structured by time and practice and law to be apart from these other three branches. It's not a co-equal branch of government, as I said. It's, you know, a uh, subject to congressional and other kinds of political oversight. But there's this idea that the Fed is independent. And so when I started working on this book, again, about six years ago, I started as an article. I started puzzling through, well, what do we mean by this concept of independence? I mean, in some sense, independence, that sounds great. That's like motherhood or fatherhood or apple pie. All American. It's all American. We are independent. Yep. But what does it mean when you say you've got an independent central bank? Well, scholars have been studying central banks for centuries, and they've been studying this concept of central bank independence most actively for about the last 30 to 40 years. And so they've got kind of a working definition of independence, I learned very early in my research, and it goes something like this. A central bank, let's refer to the Federal Reserve in particular. So the Fed is independent because, number one, there's a legal separation between the Fed chair, Janet Yellen, Ben Bernanke, Alan Greenspan and the like, and the president. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that, separ- that legal separation between those two people is because we want the Fed chair who runs the Fed to make monetary policy with an eye toward price stability, low mm-hmm. inflation. Yep. And if we put that set of tools in the hands of the president, well, the president wants to either run for reelection or ensure a good legacy. Yeah. And the fear is that the president will have the temptation to goose the economy artificially with high inflation so that short-term problems go away even if they create long-term problems down the road. Uh, so there are about five aspects of that definition I just described. Number one, the law is doing the work here. Yeah. Number two, that the Fed is just a single person, right? the famous fe- face that we see uh, in uh, in the newspapers. Number three, that the outside audience that's trying to influence monetary policy and the Fed policy yeah. is the president. Number four, that the central bank's uh, mission is very technical and technocratic. It's only the work of expertise. There are no values, ideologies, in sure. a word, no politics. And then the fifth one is that, that the Fed is only oriented toward keeping inflation low. Now, in my book, I just go for about 350 pages and just (laughs) pop each one of those as myths. The Fed is a they, not an it, or a she, or a he. Its internal governance matters enormously in terms of who exercises power within the Fed. More than just the president are interested in how the Fed operates on the outside. This includes other politicians, like members of Congress, but also includes international central bankers, academic economists, uh, the public... The markets in the abstract and many others. Number three, law is not doing the work people think it's doing. Sure. Yeah. I trained as both a historian and as a lawyer. And as I'm reading through these statutes and thinking about how they changed over time, I saw, I saw that there, uh, the, the things, the stories we tell about the legal structure of the Fed are, are largely sometimes incomplete, sometimes false. Number four, the, this idea that what constitutes central banking is just the purview of experts and that if you sure. get the right yeah. if you take the right classes and take the right exams and you write the right papers everyone will agree uh, and that's incorrect for the most interesting and most controversial of decisions that central banks have to make there's a point at which the technical apparatus is exhausted and doesn't produce a unanimous decision sure yeah. And then there's a gap between that point where being an expert is not going to help you anymore and the moment of decision-making. What fills in that gap? Well, there's a word central bankers don't like to hear, but it's true. Ideology, values, judgment. Now, that's not peculiar to central bankers. We all have ideologies. We all have values. Yeah. But the point is is that the values of the individual central bankers are going to be what drives the uh, filling of that gap between their technical expertise, which is incredibly relevant. It's not like it's just politics by another name. Sure, yeah. yeah. But that gets them past that expertise and to the point where they've got to make decisions, under conditions of uncertainty, which of course are doing. And then the last thing, uh, the idea that the Fed is only in charge of keeping inflation low is false historically, it's false today, it's false tomorrow. The Fed does an extraordinary number of different things that have been uh, stuffed inside the institution by an eager Congress, eager to see the Fed use its power authority reputation to accomplish all kinds of goals. And so my, my argument throughout the book and then with a, a single chapter at the end that kind of talks about what, what we should do about all of this. But through most of the book, it's just sort of laying that out and showing using history and law and politics and economics mm-hmm. to tell that broader story to say we need to look at the Fed where the Fed lives, not just in the stylized version of the Fed that, uh, that people talk about, which turns out not to be true.
1: And seemingly, if you look at what the, the, the country has gone through with the economy you know, since the recession to where we are now Mm -hmm. in bringing this book out now, because let's be honest, you know, we're we're sitting here in the studio. We've got CNBC on in this studio. We've got, you know, Bloomberg on in the other, you know, everything around finance. And of course, everything around the Federal Reserve is publicized. Mm -hmm. And every time Janet Yellen goes to speak in front of Congress, it is all day TV event. Yeah. And so from that perspective, bringing a book for about talking about the independence of the Federal Reserve right now it is there's no better time to do it mm-hmm. Yeah. because of, of how independent we see the Federal Reserve in many cases when Janet Yellen goes to speak in front of Congress.
0: Yeah, I, I well, I hope that the timing works well so that uh, uh, all of our listeners are buying 100 copies each <laughs> to, sell, to send to their friends and relatives. But I need um, to get an autograph. Uh, copy yeah, by yeah, yeah, yeah. There absolutely. Um. <laughs> And one of my basic arguments that's kind of the punchline here for all of this, uh, if I had to boil it down to maybe two points, I would do these two. Number one, there's this sense that when you're talking about the Fed, you either have to be for it or against it. Right. 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 And I, I get that all the time. You know, when people find out I've written a book about the Fed, they ask, OK, so so are you for it or against it? Right. And my my argument is that that is the wrong way to approach this extraordinary and extraordinarily powerful institution yep. better to put that question to the side guns back in our holsters ladies and gentlemen let's have a dispute later once we understand what it is that we're talking about uh the second point that i would reduce uh, from from independence is you know when i started out as i mentioned that thinking okay this is just sort of an all-american term synonym for goodness yeah i'm starting to realize the term independence just is kind of an empty one there's not much analytical content in it. Yeah. To say that the Fed is or is not independent, you've not really said anything at all. Right. Uh, the better question is, well, independent from whom? To what end? How? right? Yeah. And these questions are the questions that I take up in the book. Incidentally, the question of are you for it or against it is a very old one, older including than the Fed. There's uh, discussions of the Bank of England for example, there's a great book by Walter Badgett. I use Walter Badgett. He was the former editor of The Economist in the 19th century. I use quotes from him as epigraphs ahead of, on top of each chapter. And the one that I use to start the book says uh, about his own book, about the Bank of England, he says, two hosts of eager disputants confront a new author on this subject with one question. Are you for it or against it? And they care for little else. And my argument, like Badgett before me, is to say, you know, let's not be obsessed with single sentences about the Fed. Let's take some time and devote some deep thinking about this structure so that we're not engaging in either conspiracy theories on the one hand, yeah. saying that the Fed is responsible for everything that's evil in the world, or on the other hand, saying that the Fed can do no wrong and that challenging its, its actions is uh, challenging the very legitimacy of government or something like that.
1: You bring up uh, an interesting uh, point, and you talk about Kind of the jumble of, of functions that Congress ha- has given the Fed uh, over the course of, of a century about how it's kind of undermined the efficacy of the appointment process. Talk a little bit about that.
0: Well, when, so one of the big problems that we have with having an, a central bank that exists with any kind of insulation from the political process is a question of legitimacy. Yeah. Because in a democracy, the way you get legitimacy to exercise the power of government is through elections. Mm-hmm. But of course, uh, at, the, at the Fed, the leaders, the people who sit in the big chairs, they're not running for office, right? And that's actually a very, very good thing. We don't want elections determining every single decision that the Fed makes. But here's the problem. We need some sort of tie. And currently the tie into elections democracy to the central bank is at the level of appointment. The president appoints seven of the 19 members of the Federal Open Market Committee Mm -hmm. and Senate confirms those seven appointments. But appointing them for what, right? Well, for the last, again, 40 years or so, that meant appointing them to do monetary policy. And so that the focus on monetary policy has been exclusive almost. Mm -hmm. So that when there's a new appointment by a president, everyone says, well, are they a dove or a hawk, right? Are they going to be more attuned to inflation or more attuned to employment? And that's deeply problematic because it's oversimplified. That means we're ignoring all the other many, many functions that the Fed has. And we saw before the crisis that by ignoring these functions, by putting people in the big chairs, pulling the big levers, without knowing anything about their yeah. regulatory philosophy, their ideas about consumer financial protection, their experience overseeing the payment system, which was, uh, became an issue before and after 9-11, we are essentially saying we're abdicating on the public accountability function of the appointment process because uh-huh. we're not able to ask them what it is they know about the many tools that they'll have in their toolkit because we've rendered the Fed as a, a the equivalent as only an inflation fighter. Um, that might be a good idea in theory, but that is not what the Fed is in practice.
1: W- one of the uh, the areas off of that uh, th- that we should probably talk about is the creation of the consumer Finance, Financial Protection Bureau, yeah. uh, and, how, and I guess at the behest of, of Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. uh, that, as you wrote in the book, in the history of law reviews, it's probably safe to say that there's never been an article more influential in institution building than the one written by Elizabeth Warren and her co-author.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Elizabeth Warren wrote a magazine essay in 2007 that was playing with this idea that we would – there's so many rules that you have to uh, uh, follow if you're going to build and sell a toaster. Yeah. But there was essentially nothing that you had to do in order to build and sell a mortgage. It was 2007, <laughs> yep. ahead of the crisis. Yep. So then she re- re- wrote, so this is a short article for a magazine, Then she wrote a, a, a law review article with her co-author to really go through systematically and say, okay, here, what, here's what the laws are, here's what the functions are. So she... She advocated consolidating the existing authorities that had been scattered among uh, five, arguably seven different agencies, uh, to uh, put them in a single agency. And uh, this is what became the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, now, the, the CFPB is hugely controversial uh-huh. uh, along essentially partisan lines. There are few, if any, Republicans who like it. and There are few, if any, Democrats who don't. Um, and uh, and that's, that's regrettable in its own right. But here's the thing that's really great that I, that I think all of us should agree, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and that is by carving out from the Fed, the Fed was the primary regulator for consumer financial protection, by carving out those functions into a separate agency. Now, whether you hate the CFPB or you love it, Every single time a president appoints a new director, mm-hmm. we have a conversation devoted exclusively not to that person's views on monetary policy, yeah. not whether she's a dove or a hawk, but what is that person's views about the existing f- consumer financial protection laws, and her theory of how those should be enforced. And that's re- this is more than just theory here. This is in practice. So. To give you a good example, uh, a, a famous and and very well-regarded uh, and widely respected economist named Lawrence Meyer was a, yep. a, an appointee by the Clinton administration in the 1990s to the Fed's Board of Governors. This is seen as appropriately as a sterling appointment because he's, he's the real deal. Uh-huh. Uh, but he's a real deal as an economic forecaster and macroeconomist. So in Joseph Stiglitz, who's the... Uh, the uh, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisers gives him a call and says, hey, you know, you're, we're thinking about appointing you to, to the Fed. Mm-hmm. President Clinton's thinking about appointing you to the Fed. Um, and they had a brief conversation about, you know, monetary policy. And then uh, Stiglitz says, and by the way, uh, you know, we're not going to seek to influence you at all, but we are big fans of the CRA. And Meyer sort of starts to <laughs> stammer like, oh, sh- you, the, the CRA, uh, uh, you know, okay. And then they hang up, and all of a sudden, Myers' fax machine starts spitting out a, six, a sixty-page history of the Community Reinvestment Act, yeah. which he had never heard of. Yeah, right. He didn't know what CRA stood for. <laughs> right. Now, here's what's remarkable about this: He said that he learned quickly. He learned it, and then he became the federal government's number one point person on enforcing the CRA. Huh. Now, I, I don't, I mentioned this story not to you know discredit. Uh, Meyer at all in any in any respect. I mean, the, the idea that one person is going to have expertise in all the different functions of the Fed is is fantastical. Yeah. But the fact that he became the number one enforcer of these laws <clears throat> is itself something of an absurdity. And that is that nobody, even though he well, wielded that extraordinary amount of authority and power over what is, and let's be clear, the CRA is one of the most important pieces of legislation... Uh, In consumer financial protection that people love or hate, but (laughs) is unquestionably important Um, to not know what it is as the uh, federal government's primary enforcer of that act is something that will never happen again, whether a Republican or a Democrat appoints Mm -hmm. the director of the CFPB, that person will have an opinion about the CRA and the many other legal authorities that the CFPB has. Now, I'm importing from this debate because this is very much about Fed governance, because, again, this was what the Fed had done before the Dodd-Frank Act. Because this is the place where politics is at its best with respect to the Federal Reserve, Mm -hmm. and that is at the Fed's governance, the appointment process, to be able to have serious conversations, not to micromanage central banking functions, but to make sure that the the process that we have through centuries of experience realized is very bad but is better than all the other alternatives is democracy. And that process is good at identifying whose values will get voice. You talk about also about
1: how the, the mission of the Fed is changing uh, about you know the things that they're looking out for, the systemic risks, bank supervision. What are some of the other new demands that, that are really important to the Fed uh, and how they manage them. Yeah.
0: Well, so the Fed, in some ways, you know, I call this chapter uh, on, on the Fed. We're talking about the Fed's non-monetary policy functions, the once and future Federal Reserve, by which I mean, uh, uh, this is, of course, reference to the idea that King Arthur is the once and future yeah, king right. of England, yep, right? Yep. Once and future meaning that these many of these functions were the Fed's functions at, at its inception. And then now, after a multi decade period where the Fed became almost exclusively interested in using a single instrument, short term governmental interest rates, Mm -hmm. to do a single thing, which is effectively balance between employment and inflation, unemployment and employment and inflation, we start to see the Fed returning to its roots. So what are these routes? Well, part of it is overseeing the payment system and making sure that payments are able to clear and that people are eager and willing to engage in the clearing of each other's transactions. So these people here mostly are banks. But importantly, as we learned from the financial crisis, not exclusively banks, financial institutions of all shapes and sizes. So the Fed has come back in a very um, big way, receiving a a huge boost from from Congress in the form of the Dodd-Frank Act. To returning to two different kinds of, of regulatory and supervisory authority. One, what we might call ex ante authority, meaning before a crisis occurs, here's what the Fed's going to be doing and requiring financial institutions to do. Mm-hmm. Everything from making sure the loan to value ratios are, uh, for mortgages are, are being met uh, according to regulations to making sure that banks are structuring their balance sheets. Such that they are more weighted toward equity as opposed to debt, mm-hmm. a variety of other different kinds of functions, and then on the other hand, ex post supervision and regulation, and in the post here, the after the fact is the fact of a financial crisis.
1: Sure. Yep.
0: So the Fed is, and again this has very little to do with monetary policy. There are connections for sure, right? But this is a separate conversation, uh, and managing both the Looking into the future and seeing where risks are becoming deposited uh, in the financial system, and then looking back into the past and saying, "Okay, now we've had this financial crisis. How do we clean it up?" The Fed is spending a lot more time thinking about these kinds of questions yeah. uh, across the board, and it thought about these questions much much less for the decades between roughly, <laughs> uh, we could say, you know, about 1955 or so through uh, to 2008.